In today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I talk to you about two skills that I truly believe are essential in coaching and in life. One is how to establish and maintain rapport with your clients. Number two is the power of questions. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hello, Doug O'Brien here, flying solo again today. You should probably get used to my being solo on these things. I probably will stop announcing it because it'll be somewhat the norm. I'll do alternating with uh, solo performances, if you will, with interviews. Um, Just easier that way. So, uh, and I think I've got a few things to say. At least I like to think so. You can always shut it off if you disagree or skip to the next one. That's the beauty of podcasts. You have an off button. But I'm going to talk to you a little bit about something that I think is really quite important today. And actually, to tell you the truth, there's a number of themes running through my head, so we'll see how it comes out. Um, but I was talking yesterday, I did an interview yesterday with one of my good friends, Bill Baker, uh, interview you'll hear again in a week or two. I say again because I've already interviewed Bill, but uh, this is the second part of the interview. And partly, I wanted to do two interviews with Bill because the first time, then I interviewed him. He was still employed by Tony Robbins. He was uh, executive coach for Tony's coaching program. And uh, there were some things he felt he really couldn't say or would be reluctant to say uh, for the record as an employee of Tony. So I wanted to get him back to find out what were those things <laughs> you couldn't say before. I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Um, it was really good. It wasn't that earth shattering or anything, but it was very good stuff. And it made me start thinking about some of the things that I learned from Tony Robbins. Just so you know, in case you don't, Tony was an NLP trainer back in the days. He trained me in NLP, my NLP certification course, my, my NLP certification came from Robbins Research International signed by Tony Robbins. Um, he taught a 15 day intensive NLP certification course. It was quite wonderful. Actually, he, he teaches well, and he had some great assistants. He brought people in like Robert Diltz, who's the co-developer of NLP, he brought in Richard Bandler, who's the co-creator of NLP. He had Tad James there and Wyatt Woodsmall. He had a number of people. They were all quite extraordinary. Dave Dobson was my first introduction to Dave Dobson was there. He was there as a hypnotherapist. Amazing stuff. Tony was a very good teacher, and I got my um, master, my trainer's training, trainer's track the following year. Uh, again, from Tony, learned a lot from him. But no matter where you take an NLP training, one of the very basic things that you will learn, the very rudimentary, important first thing you learn is the importance of rapport. And I don't know if you've kept track, but with all the interviews that I've done on the Essential Coaching Skills podcast, so far at least, when I've asked people, what do you consider to be an essential coaching skill? Nine times out of 10, I, I, I actually haven't crunched the numbers, but the vast majority of the people will say it's rapport. Rapport is the number one essential coaching skill. You need to know how to establish. In an NLP, they'll tell you 
to maintain rapport, to keep rapport. So what is that and how do you do that? Now, of course, everyone knows it when they feel it. Really? Basically, it's a, it's a other than conscious feeling that you have when you're with somebody else that you have rapport with. You just like them. They like you. Tony Robbins used to put it like this. He said, people who are like each other tend to like each other. So there's a clue there. People who are like each other tend to like each other. And this is, you, you remember this. I'm sure maybe some of you do it. Maybe you're doing it every day. When you meet somebody new, you find something that's common with them, you know, that you have in common with them. So as an example, if they're wearing a Green Bay Packers cap, you go like, hey, the pack, man, I love the pack. Go, go Aaron Rodgers. You know, you, you find something that's, that you have in common with them. Oh, you're from Michigan. I'm from Michigan. You know, that sort of stuff. Or another way to do it is to match and mirror how they present themselves. So as an example, if they talk really fast, if they talk really fast, really excitedly like this, you go like, wow, that's really interesting. I like what you're saying. <laughs> you talk the same way that they talk. If they talk real slow, then you say, wow, yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying. And you talk real slow too. You know, you, you, you match their patterning. You can match the way they move. If they you know, use all these hand gestures when they talk, you can use hand gestures when you talk. You know, so you kind of do this dance of matching and mirroring what they do because people who are like each other tend to like each other. Now, the question is then, is it manipulative? And the answer is, yeah, kind of. Except that it's not really because you're doing it with the intention of having rapport. And a magic thing happens. You begin to have rapport as well. I mean, in other words, that connection can't be made if, if it's not two ways, right? You can't really, really have a sense of rapport if it's not two ways. Um, over the years, when I was studying NLP in deeper things, and I became a trainer for Tony Robbins, one of my co actually we were technically master trainers at the time, um, myself and a fellow named Greg Gibson kind of came upon this idea that um, there's a there's a shortcut there's a shortcut to uh, to have and rapport with somebody you know you can practice all these different skills but there's a shortcut to it and that is as Craig put it I think uh, you actually like them you know you you find something about them that you actually like and respect and appreciate about that person and if you can start sort of like and I don't mean this in any way that's inappropriate boundary-wise, but if you find a way to sort of fall in love with your client, you know, really appreciate a certain thing about them, that's, that's going to do it. That's going to do it. You're going to have rapport because they will sense that. And you will automatically start, you know, matching and mirroring the way they talk, the expressions they use, the gestures they use, the posture you use, automatically will happen automatically will happen expressions on the face all those things the more that you can match the more that'll happen and those things will happen automatically when you actually care about the other person so then the question becomes how do you do that how do you care about them and i think that comes down to the idea of the next topic i wanted to talk to you about today and that is the power of questions the power of questions. Stop for a moment. Now, some of you have done this before. 
go with me on this or fast forward if you don't want to, but stop for a moment and just look around the room that you're in. If you're outdoors or whatever, that's fine. You can, you know, just look around the space that you're in. Or if you're driving, you can look around the, you know, the scenery that you're passing. But just think to yourself, ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. What do you see in your field of vision that's made out of metal? What is metal in your field of vision? The room that you're in or the space that you're in or the scenery you're passing in the car. Just take a moment and check that out. What's metal? What do you see that's metal? I can tell you that as I stand here talking to you, I have a microphone in front of my face that's mostly metal. So there's that. You know, the stand that it's attached to is metal. The computer that it's attached to is metal. There's a lot of metal here. Stand that the computer on is metal. There's many metal things here, my immediate surroundings. So I don't know about you, but I'm seeing quite a bit of metal. Okay, now, um, except for those of you who are driving, uh, close your eyes. Or if you're flying a plane, don't close your eyes. You know, <laughs> unless you're operating some heavy machinery, stop for a minute, close your eyes, and let's just give yourself a little test. We asked you what's meddling here, and you were a pretty observant person. I've always thought that about you. Pretty observant person. But now with your eyes closed, answer this question. What do you see, or what did you see? What is there in your room that's green? What's green in your room? or your surroundings. Now, if you're outside and it's summertime, there's probably a lot of grass and trees or that sort of thing, but just see if you can name them. See if you can name everything, everything that's green in your room or your surroundings. And then when you feel like you've gotten there and I'll cut to the chase here, you can take as much time as you want to actually do this, but when you're ready, open your eyes and look out and check. Check it out. See how much you saw. What did you miss? What didn't you see? What did you neglect to observe and take in? And if I asked you then, well, how come you didn't notice that? How come you didn't notice that bush or that tree or that painting or that book? Well, why didn't you notice that? It's right in front of your face. So, well, because you told me to look at metal. And I would say, no, I didn't. I didn't tell you to look at metal. I asked you to look at metal. I asked you to look for what's metal in here. And you did. The point is this. Your brain, my brain, the human brain, brains. The human brain is a question answering device. Obviously, it's a lot more than that. But one of the things it does is it operates by answering questions and posing questions. So think about this for a second. If if while we were talking here, something suddenly happened, maybe the there's a lot of static on the line or you know whatever, if something happened, what would happen to you? you your brain would go like, oh, what was that? What, what's that mean? What do I do? What, what do I do? Right? If, this, if the light suddenly went, it's like, what, what happened? What do I do? What's this mean? Right? The brain is asking questions like that instantly. Where do I run to? How do I get out? You know, what are the questions? So in answering those questions, your brain goes, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Nothing's wrong. Just a little glitch here. It's, everything's fine. Your brain will come up with answers to those questions. Your brain is a question answering device. So if I ask you what's metal in this room, your brain kind of basically puts on blinders to everything else and you just, you know, sort by metal. Sort by. That was a term that uh, seemed to be a lot more meaningful when computers first came around. It's like, well, I was always doing sorts, sort by last name or sort by zip code or whatever. It always seemed to be something that you could do sorts. Maybe it's just a function of what we used computers for back then, but uh, nevertheless, you know what I mean by a sort. You, 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 
if you have a list of addresses, you can sort by the last name and it gives you the list in alphabetical order of the last name, or you can sort by telephone numbers and gives you the telephone numbers first come up. So when my brain sorts for what's metal, it's, it's, it's deleting everything that's not metal because that's not what the question was. I ask what's green in here, then my brain goes, oh, what's green? And it asks that question and wants to find the answer to that question. So it omits, it deletes everything that's not green. I'm focusing on green so I don't see the blue or the red or the pink or the orange or the yellow. You know, we don't see it. It's there. You know, I used to do this exercise, still do it, but I used to do it when I had an office in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York, I used to have an office there. It was painted yellow and had a fire engine red couch, leather couch. I did not pick the furniture, nor did I paint the walls, but that's what it was. It was a, a yellow room with a red, red couch on it. And so then I would do this thing and I'd say, okay, what's metal in here? And they'd look around and close their eyes and you'd be all ready for the quiz. You know, I set it up like, okay, I'm going to quiz you on this. Quiz you on this would be worth $25,000 if you get the answer of everything that's metal in here. What's metal in here? What's metal in here? Okay, now close your eyes. And then with your eyes closed, I'd say either what's red in this room or I'd say what's yellow in this room. And you'd be amazed how many people did not see the very couch they were sitting on. And it is big and it is red. It is red. And the room is, I wouldn't say it's canary yellow, but it's pretty obviously yellow. And, or I'd say, if what's yellow in here? And nine times out of 10, people didn't notice the room that they were in was yellow. And why is that? It's for this very same reason. So why do we bring this up? Because as a coach, once you have rapport, of course, yes, I believe that is perhaps the most basic, most essential skill that you can have as a coach is to be able to establish rapport and maintain rapport, to create a sense of connection, to create a sense of, of connection with your clients, respect, appreciation, togetherness. You know, you are a team, you're working together towards this unified goal together. You're playing the game as our first interviewee dave buck said you know what's that's why it's coaching because it's, it's a game we're playing this game of life and we're gonna we're gonna play together you and me we're gonna create this thing together it's about playful it's about creation we're gonna co-create so once you have that rapport and this connection is established i think the one of the most essential skills after that is the ability to ask good questions to be have the ability to ask good questions, to be able to lead that person, your client, to where they want to go, but have it feel like it's a feeling, a, a sense of agency, that they're the one discovering it, they're the one that's bringing it out, they're the one that's acting on it, they're the one that's got that responsibility to create this thing in their life. You are a guide, right? You're not fixing them, you're not doing therapy on them, you are a a guide. You're like a Sherpa that says, hey, come this way. I'll carry your bag for you and you know, or your, your backpack, whatever. You know, it's what a Sherpa and he guides him towards the mountain. It doesn't carry him up the mountain. I carry his bag or some you know, things, but, you know, it guides them, guides them at the top of the mountain, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? So let me tell you a little story. 
a number of years ago, I'm trying to think how many it was. I, I, I don't like to age myself or, or brag about anything like this, but um, it was quite a long time ago. Um, a woman named Leslie Cameron Bandler, former wife of Richard Bandler, the co-creator of NLP, um, was herself a, a very creative, powerful force, co-creative force in the NLP world. Um, one of the people like Robert Diltz, et cetera, who are really on the forefront of creating new stuff. She was great. She was really great and had a number. She has a number of books. You can still find them. Transformations, I think, is hers. I could be wrong about that. No, that's not hers. Uh, never mind. But let's look it up if you're interested, Leslie Cameron Banda. Um, but at the time, back then in the late 80s, early 90s, she was working on this thing that was basically the idea that every person has as their sort of core question back deep in their unconscious mind, a kind of you know, primary core question. And that question is like a heat-seeking missile for them. It, it guides them. It, it, it directs them in life. In whatever situation they're in, there's a kind of boils down to a core question, a principal question. Um, she used examples of certain people who might be like, uh, let's say, real estate moguls from New York, big on Wall Street or whatever, who might have a kind of core question like, you know, how can I profit here? What's, what's, what's in it for me? And wherever they go, whether it's a, you know, boardroom on Wall Street or an orphanage in Biafra, you know, they enter that room with a kind of principal question, core question inside, like, how can I profit from this? What's in it for me? Wherever they go, it's always there. Whereas another person, and I've often used this example, um, Mother Teresa, some of you might remember when she was alive. Um, she's recently, well, not recently, but she's passed on and she's heading towards sainthood, I think. At any rate, Mother Teresa was a wonderful woman, good figure in the world. And she kind of was always famous for, for going to places like orphanages in Biafra and helping, you know, being a, a helper, helping create new orphanages, you know, feed the hungry and clothe the poor and that sort of thing. So she probably, I'm guessing, had a core principal question kind of like this, kind of like, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I serve God through my actions? Something like that. So wherever she went, whether it was a boardroom on Wall Street or an orphanage in Biafra, that's what she brought to it. And her actions were kind of created by this question she, she was asking, the answers that came from the question that she asked, right? Because it's not just the question, is it? It's the answers that you get from it. Like, oh, that could be profitable, or I could help you, right? So your brain is a question-answering device, and it will respond to the question that you ask. What questions are you asking yourself? Because I think that the question you ask yourself, and then for, of course, the questions that you ask your client or the questions that you get your client to begin to habitually ask themselves are really important questions to discover. And now I will say that Leslie Cameron Bender had this, this process whereby you went through a series, a long series, I never did this, series of questions in order to really get down to and uncover what is that core question. My friend Greg did this and he got down to his core question, but I never went through the whole process. It was really kind of rigorous, took a long time, but really kind of interesting how once you got down to there, you could then say, well, gosh, what does that imply? If I have this core question, 
what will that mean for me? What, what will that cause me to do in my life? And is that what I want to do? Because these core questions are not chosen by us consciously, are they? For the most part, no. For the most part, they've been kind of installed at the factory, you know, if you will, by what I think of as, you know, the real hypnotists, the real amateur hypnotists in the world, people like our parents, people like our teachers, people like our older siblings, you know, sort of thing. People who are so instrumental in our lives and said things to like, oh, you're so clumsy, you'll never amount to anything. Well, thanks, Dad. And you hear these things so often that we tend to believe it. I think that's kind of how our core question gets manifest. We we are we exist in a certain, you know, situation in life when we're little, little, little kids. And then we sort of create it as we go. Right. And finally it gets there so it's so habitual that it becomes our core question. We don't choose it, it happens. So it's kind of interesting to be able to decipher, discover what it is, and then say, well, gosh, is that the best question for me? You know, because maybe I want to be more like Mother Teresa, but maybe my core question, because of my upbringing, etc., is more like the other guy. Is that what I want? Or maybe the opposite. Maybe I want to be like that other guy. So what can I change my question to in order to do things that I haven't been doing yet to get where I want to go? You know? Now, because that process was so challenging, um, I don't think Leslie really stuck with that whole process for long. I don't think she really developed this this process. But I, I do know this. I do know that... My friend Greg Gibson, that I've mentioned before, and myself and others, um, told Tony about it, told, told Tony Robbins about it. And he, of course, was plugged into lots of places we weren't as well. So he started thinking about this idea of questions. And he came up with a whole series of questions that I think are really, really excellent. Super, super good. I think in some ways, honestly, for my money, some of Tony's best work. Yeah. Yeah, I said that said that because it's simple it's easy and it's really powerful it's something that i often teach my coaching clients depending on the person of course but often do often have taught my clients when they're not coaching clients but when i've used nlp and hypnosis as kind of a therapeutic tool and i've worked with people with one-on-one -on -one sessions as in those people that came in my office and sat on that big red couch you know so i teach them this and i'll tell you a story one of those people that came into that office in Brooklyn was this uh, woman who came in and, and it is almost like the lights went out as soon as she walked into the office. It was like she had this dark cloud that just came into the room with her and the lights went out and she sat down and it was a suddenly dark room. I mean, depressed, depressed. Now, I didn't make that diagnosis. It was just a feeling feeling that was there. And I didn't make any sort of diagnosis. It's not what I do. But she told me that she was depressed. She said, yes, I'm clinically depressed. And my psychiatrist has, has prescribed this treatment of Prozac, which is a big antidepressant back in the day. And, uh, you know, I've just thought maybe I'd try something else before I started doing all that. 
And so I said, yeah, well, okay. Well, before we start, let me just ask you a question, I said. I said, what are you happy about in life? And first she looked at me, kind of struggled to lift her gaze from the floor and looked at me and said, what? <laughs> As if I was speaking a different language. You know, it's kind of looking at me like, what are you, crazy? I said I was depressed. Let's do therapy here, bub. <laughs> I said, what are you happy about in life? And she looked at me and said, nothing. I said, oh, well, then I can, I can see why you'd be depressed or be acting depressed of that kind of thing. Well, I said, what if you could be happy about something? What might that be? If, if, if you could be happy about something, what might that be? And she said, wow. And I'm making a long story short here because uh, she struggled a little bit with this question. But basically, eventually she said, well, I guess I could say I'm, I'm happy to be alive. And I said, great, let's start there. So what is it about being alive that makes you happy? And she went, oh, well, if I, I guess, you know, if I'm, I'm alive, at least there's a possibility of change. I said, okay, great. And uh, how does it make you feel knowing that there's a possibility of change? And she went, well, I guess it gives me a glimmer of hope. I said, excellent. Really, that's good. So that's great. Thank you. What else are you happy about in your life right now? And she said, well, I guess I'm happy that I got that new job. I said, oh, you got a job? What's your new job? I said, well, I I'm a librarian and I went to school at Columbia for library science, got my master's there. So I got my a job right up here at the Brooklyn Public Library. You know, it's really great. I said, that's awesome. That's awesome. How does that make you feel? I said, oh, it makes me feel really good. I mean, it's five minutes from my house. I can walk there. It feels really good. I said, oh, that's great. What are you else are you happy about in your life right now? And she said, well, I'm happy that I got that new kitten. I said, you got a kitten? She said, yeah, he's really cute. I really love him. He's so cute. He's really playful. And her attitude is changing now. I don't know if you can hear it in her voice. <laughs> it's really, that's her voice. <laughs> Excuse me, just drinking a little water here. Um, but she she was starting to to respond much faster. She talked faster. She had more lilt in her voice, more energy in the body. It's when the lights started dimming up, you know, growing stronger. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it's pretty pretty amazing change. And so she was, she was talking about her kitten. She got really animated into it. I said, "What else are you happy about?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm happy about this." And it really shifted pretty dramatically over the course of maybe. 10, 15 minutes of talking about all these things that made her happy. And so, I mean, it was like she was a different person. She was, uh, she'd lost 10 years of life. You know, she looked great. She looked wonderful. So, and I stopped and I said, so uh, let me just ask you, you, you mentioned that you were depressed. Do you feel depressed right now? And she said, actually, at the moment, I do not. I said, on a scale of zero to 10, if, if, if when you walked in here was zero and, you know, sort of, you know, no, no feelings of aliveness, no feelings of good. Um, where would you say you are now in a scale of zero to 10 of, of happiness, of the of contentness? She said, oh, I, I think I went from like a negative 10 to like a five at this point. And I said, 
Cool. <laughs> That's great. And if you stop and think about what just happened, you know, if you, if I, if anybody manufactured a drug, you know, and manufactured a pill or a drink or anything that could take a person to, from negative 10 to positive five in 10 minutes, in 10, give it 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, hey, let's say 20. But that kind of change in that short of a period of time, if you had a pill that did that, you would be rich. You would be the richest person on the planet, wouldn't you? Because that's extraordinary. Let me tell you, Prozac does not do that. Wellbutrin does not do that. Those drugs do not do this change of that ex intensity, that extremity, ex extremeness in such a short period of time. And here's the point. It wasn't a drug. It was the way she talked to herself, the questions that she asked herself. I was asking the questions, but she had to ask them to herself to answer them. And think about all this as well, that these questions had a particular structure to them. So generally speaking, when a person goes into a therapist's office, what is expected? It is expected they're going to analyze the problem, right? The, the tool of analysis. We say, wow, where did this come from? How did this come to be this way? Why are you feeling this way? Why is this happening? And those questions are designed to penetrate and get deeper down to the core of the problem. The problem with analyzing the problem is that it becomes sometimes bigger, sometimes more fleshed out, more three-dimensional. Rarely does it really change the problem. It just gets me more conversant about it. So the person might still feel as bad as ever, but they can talk about why it is that way. They have a lot of conversational points as to how it became this pattern, right? What we're doing is we're turning it on its head. We're analyzing not the problem. We're analyzing the solution. We're using that tool of analysis to say, what makes you feel good? Why? Why? So we're using that why question. How did it come to be that way in the service of creating a more fleshed out, more three-dimensional, more realistic, happy part? What are you happy about in your life? You pick something. I'm happy about that new job. Why? What is it about that new job that makes you happy? Well, because of this, because of that, because of this other thing. It becomes much more real, much more three-dimensional, more defined. And you say, and how does that make you feel? How, how does having all that, how does that make you feel? Stop and consider that question for a moment. In order to answer the question, what do you have to do? In order to the question, in order to answer the question, you have to feel it. You've got to take that thing and like a, putting on a new coat or something. You got to try it on. You got to put it on. You got to feel it in order to answer the question. How does it make you feel? Oh, it makes me feel happy. That makes me feel content, makes me feel safe, makes me, whatever it makes you feel. They've got to put it on to feel it in order to answer the question. So suddenly, this person who is negative 10, which is, she described it herself, and this is a true story. She described it herself as being negative 10. She had ratcheted up in like five, six questions up to a positive five. That's extraordinary. But why is that? Because every time she felt this new feeling, she was at a different place. She was feeling differently. 
when you feel differently, it opens up other doors of perception, you know, other places in your brain that you have suddenly have access. I have now access to these components where I've stored the feelings of happiness. I've stored them up here on the fourth floor, not down there in the basement, right? It's, it's stored up here. There's, a, there's an expression in learning that says um, learning is state-related. Learning is state-related. When you're in a particular state, you learn doing certain things in that certain state. There's been a lot of studies of that where people you know, play music while they're studying, and then when they play music during the test, they do much better. You know, There's comic, comic uh, stories about this, like I saw an episode of Frankie and... What's it called? Frankie and... Grace and Frankie where one of the characters smoked pot while she was studying for her uh, driving test, but she always went in for the test very straight and failed the test all the time. Finally, somebody said, well, state-related learning, mom, <laughs> and got her to smoke pot when she went in for the test and she aced it. So it's you know comic, it's fiction, but it's funny. It's also true, not necessarily about the pot smoking, but state-related learning is true. So what? It means that every time she got feeling better, she was able to access more things that made her feel that way. So I said, what else are you happy about? I'm happy about the kitten. Why does that make you happy? Why does it make you happy? Analyze the solution. Analyze the happiness. It becomes more real, more fleshed out, more three-dimensional. How does it make you feel? Well, it makes me feel that you have to try it on for size. That makes me feel great, right? And we've ratcheted it up to another level. So, yes. It is about the questions you ask yourself and get into the habit of asking yourself. You must, one can, get into the habit of asking good questions by habitually asking yourself good questions. So I've told you exactly one. I told you Tony Robbins came up with a slew of questions. This is one of them. What are you happy about? Why does it make you happy? How does that make you feel? And then you repeat that at least three times. What else are you happy about? Why does that make you happy? How does that make you feel? What else are you happy about in your life? Why does that make you happy? How does that make you feel? You take that question, you do that every day. You do it morning, you do it at night. Next day, morning, next day, night. You get in the habit of doing this every day, morning and night. You get your clients, do it morning and night. Guess what? you're going to feel happier. You're going to get into new habits of asking questions. So is this as deep and penetrating as Lester Cameron Brown's of getting down to your core question? Probably not. And you can get into the good patterns this way. And there are lots of other questions as well that I will offer you in subsequent programs. Okay, but if you stop and think about it, I've given you the key, haven't I? You take whatever emotion it is that you want to feel more of and replace the word happy with that emotion. So if I were to say, you know, what am I most, I don't know, excited about in my life? Excited. What am I most proud of? What am I most determined for? What am I most, you know, resolute about? You know, any question you want. You take the feeling that you want and say, well, what what do I feel resolute about? Okay, well, I feel resolute about... um, you know, making sure that I do the best podcast I can. Okay, great. Why does that make you feel resolute? Well, because when I do the best podcast I can, then I know that I'm, you know, really living up to my my uh, mission in life of 
creating, making the world a little bit of a better place. Well, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel really good. Okay, good. So what else are you resolute about? You know, so whatever the emotion is, replace happy with that feeling. Proud, grateful, whatever it might be. And the more that you ask these questions, the more it becomes a habit. There is an old saying, an old, I don't know if it's a wives' tale. I don't want to blame the wives. <laughs> you know, I don't know where this came from. That said, you know, if you do something 21 days in a row, 21 days in a row, that it becomes a habit. That's not true. It, it might be true. It also might be true that it's five days in a row or maybe 10 days in a row. But if you do it every day, it becomes a habit. Maybe 45 days in a row. They did a study on this, actually, where a lot of the people in the study thought it was well more than 20, 21 days in a row, but it was like 36, 38. Some people thought it was more like 45. A few people in the study, it was like 143 days in a row, it became habitualized. I don't know how they measured habitualized after 143 days in a row, but it seems like by then <laughs> they'd have kind of gotten to that. But according to the respondees, that's what it took. Okay, fine. So it's not 21 days. But it's pretty clear that the more you do it, the more it becomes ingrained in you as a habit. And it helps teach your unconscious mind or other than conscious mind this new way of thinking, this new way of picturing the world. So those blinders that you have on when you say, what's metal in here? You don't see the red. Those blinders are more like, what am I happy about in life? Right? Because you know what? Life is hard. The old Buddhist saying, yeah, it's true. Life is hard. Life is hard. And what life is wonderful life is beautiful right it is there's brown around me there's green around me as i speak to you right now there's sunlight there's shadow there's darkness there's beauty right and there's pain all those things are in life what are you going to focus on well you focus on creates your reality we don't create our reality we we distort we delete generalize the in, incoming stream of information and choose what we want to focus on. The big way you choose what you focus on is the question that you ask yourself. So this is true for you. And this can be something that you can teach your coaching clients. So that's all I'm going to do for you today. Hope you enjoyed this little podcast and uh, see you next time. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.